You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Are you looking for a podcast that your whole family can enjoy that asks the deep philosophical questions like, do trees fart? If you are, then you'll love Tumble, a science podcast for kids. I'm Lindsay. And I'm Marshall. Join us as we explore stories of science discovery from butts to animals, dinosaurs, astronomy, and everything in between. You'll love these stories and you'll learn something new. Find and follow Tumble Science Podcast for Kids wherever you get your podcasts or at sciencepodcastforkids.com. Welcome to the All Creatures Podcast. This is Chris, and I'm joined with Jesse Golden. How you going? Awesome. Awesome, Jesse. And Jesse has worked with Okapis uh, in his career. So a few weeks ago, I mentioned Jesse in the uh, Flying Fox episode, somebody who I'm becoming really close friends with here in New Zealand. And I just wanted to kind of give a, a, a quick background of Jesse and I, that Jesse, Jesse knew people back in Florida that I was really good friends with. They told me to get in contact with them, which I did as soon as I got here in New Zealand. But lo and behold, Jesse and I probably have walked by each other a number of times, you know, either working at the zoo there in Gainesville or also the conservation center. So, you know, we've been in almost probably the same room and didn't know each other until now. So it just shows you how small the world is. But, uh, you know, welcome, Jesse. This week we're talking oh, about you. our copies. Mm-hmm. And I think first in the interviews... We always like to ask about, you know, kind of your background for the listeners, kind of, of what course. your experience is and, yeah, yeah. and what you've done. Yep. Uh, well, I've always wanted to work in zoos. Uh, it's been a lifelong passion of mine. And I think that goes back to when I was 10 months old, I uh, was first starting to speak. My first word was, words, um, were, what's that? And then my parents <laughs> took me to the zoo. And from there, it's, uh, that's the rest of the story there. Right. Um, I actively wanted to pursue a career. And so when I was in school, I tried to find out what was the best place to go. Um, in order to start my career. And I was told about the Santa Fe Teaching Zoo down right. in Gainesville. It's the premier zookeeper program uh, to get into the career. Right. And so I, I signed up and went down there, spent two years, uh, some of the best years of my life down there. And then I got an internship right outside of Santa Fe at this uh, private conservation center. And with a couple of months, they hired me uh, because I got my start in the old copy. Right. And they saw that I worked so well with these animals. Um, when they had an opening, they're like, oh, we've got to hire this kid because he works so well with these animals. Spent five years at the conservation center. I uh, spent the majority of the time with those animals. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're very near and dear to my heart. And uh, at the time, the recession was happening. Right. And I, w- I really wanted to have a bachelor's degree. That was, that was something I wanted. So I decided to uh, leave my work at, at the conservation center and go back to Gainesville, pursue a bachelor's degree at University of Florida. When I finished up my degree in Florida, I realized that going right back into the career, I'd only get two weeks holiday. Mm-hmm. And I always wanted to just go somewhere else in the world and go and search for these animals that I'd always seen on documentaries and read in books. And I had a mate in Australia who had just married an Australian, and she said, come on over, they've got working holiday visas. Right. So I sold my truck and everything I had, and I went over there for a year. Uh, I spent all my money uh, looking for birds, looking (laughs) for mammals, looking for reptiles, traveling all over the country. And I noticed that the New Zealand working holiday visa was free if you came from Australia. And so I'm like, all right, you know, plane ticket to New Zealand won't cost too much. Came to New Zealand, 
Uh, got a job within a couple weeks. Uh, had a fantastic time working in a small seaside community called Kaikoura. Um, had such a great time, made great friends. I came back for another summer. Mm-hmm. While I was there, we had this massive earthquake. Really shook up what life meant to be and what I'd right. like to be doing. Right. And my friends really wanted me to stay. And so I'm like, you know what? Let me look around and see what's happening. I looked for jobs in zoos in New Zealand. And there was one zoo up in Hamilton that was looking for or for heaps of people there, hiring quite a few. And I applied for a job. And sure enough, uh, just in a few weeks, interview, got hired, mm-hmm. and the rest rest is history. And yeah. So here I am today in New Zealand right. um, with, with the background that I have. Yeah. So going back to Okapi, I've always had this really big interest in the animals that have this prehistoric look to them. Mm-hmm. I love mm-hmm. dinosaurs growing right. up as kids. Nearly every five-year-old knows more about dinosaurs than the adult. Right. And I just love large prehistoric-looking animals like rhinoceros, uh, okapi, um, you know, even smaller ones like sloths, giant anteaters, things that just look weird and unique. And when I got to this conservation center, you know, I was really geared towards rhinos because I wanted the big animals. Right, and they had and quite a few. Yeah. yeah, yeah, but they put me in the okapi area because that's where they needed a, a student. That's when they needed an intern. And I just remember my first day walking in and having been a student at Santa Fe, right. we're always told how to approach animals, how to work around them, having a safety implement with you. Right. And we just walked in with this amazing creature. Right. And the keeper just had me walk up to this animal and just pet it. And its its fur was just like velvet. Right. Yeah. And the animal just lowered its head down and just wanted a scratch in the head. And from that moment, I made a connection with an animal. You know, the animal may not have recognized me or made a connection at that point, but I made one to them. Mm-hmm. And, uh, yeah, I just... Yeah, there's just something. Them. Yeah, there's just there something is. about them. Like, They're I absolutely fascinating. You know, Jesse's met asked my wife, who worked at uh, the, the San Antonio Zoo, and that was one of the first animals she worked with. And I got to one of the first exotic animals I got to interact with. Mm-hmm. They're just gorgeous. I mean, just gorgeous. So, yeah. anybody that hasn't seen a copy, I mean, obviously, if you listen to the podcast earlier in the week. You've seen pictures, or hopefully have seen pictures, because they're just gorgeous. You know, mini giraffe slash zebra hybrid is what everybody <laughs> thinks they are. But yep. you know, so the you know, what did you the okapi itself? And we're going to get a little bit into their conservation, but you know, just from the personal experience, you said you worked there for four or five years with mm-hmm. them. What did you love most about working with them? Ah. Uh, I really loved working with hoofstock. There's something relaxing working with animals that are hooves and that and that ruminate and they're just and you really love that. That's yeah, yeah. And yeah. the thing about the okapi is that they all had such di- distinct personalities. Right, right. You work with any antelope or any yeah. deer, and they've all got the herd mentality. Uh-huh. Everyone you see is no different than the rest, and they all kind of work together as a group mm-hmm. as one unit. And okapi are solitary right. animals. They they depend on themselves, and so they. They, anything that happens on and the danger they come across, everything about them is about take care of themselves, mm-hmm. so that self-preservation. And through that, they have this personality. Mm-hmm. And they've got some of the weirdest personalities, a yeah. huge range of diversity. Uh, I had animals that absolutely hated me. And, <laughs> you know, the only reason why we got along is because I brought food every day. And they were okay with that. And then mm-hmm. I had animals that absolutely loved me. I actually had one that gave me a cowlick. Right. That I had for seven years. Yeah, Every right. morning I'd come in, she'd lick my face, and I'd have this cowlick, and I'd have to uh, tell all, all my uh, barbers what that was and why it was there. Um, and they're just so interesting animals to work with because they don't verbally communicate, uh-huh. at least in a range that we can hear. Right. 
uh, they communicate through infrasound. And so you're constantly seeing their ears move around mm-hmm. all the time. And you're trying to figure out where is their focus. Uh-huh. Because of the self-preservation, they're trying to make sure there's no danger. And even though you're there and they're okay with you, if I make a sudden move, they're going to spook and run away and it could be dangerous to them or dangerous to me. Mm-hmm. And so the thing about Okapi is that they taught me so much. Mm-hmm. You know, I learned quite a bit in zoo school at Santa Fe, and I, I've learned quite a bit in other realms. But what's really taught me how to work with animals were these were these okapi. Yeah, um, I created an animal welfare ethic of my own, in which I wouldn't do or have happen to the animals I worked with that I wouldn't have happen to myself. And the okapi taught me how to really work individually and understand what their motivations were. Right. And really get into their skin to realize what it is that they wanted in life, um, what it is that motivated them every day, and how can I best support um, what they wanted. Right. And it's, you know, some of the, the things we've talked about with Angie and I, and, and each week we're covering these new species, and we're talking about all the different behaviors and the <laughs> range of behaviors, <laughs> you know, not just mating behaviors, but social interactions and and um, Angie did ask me to, to ask you if you mm-hmm. could do the copy vocalization. <laughs> she, she always tries to do these vocalizations. <laughs> oh. I don't even know if you could do so, it. So the most verbal um, sound they make is a chuff. Right. And so when Okapi see each other, and it's quite rare for this to happen in the wild, but it happens a lot in, in, in captivity, uh, the first thing you hear is this chuffing sound, which is... And they, they do that that's for like awesome. 20, 30, 60 minutes. Yeah. Um, and, you know, that's, it's, it's a fun thing to do. Because yeah. once I learned how to do that, then I would do it around the calves. Yeah. And it would kind of get them all excited and giddy, especially once we conditioned them to be around us and, right. and, and, and uh, enjoy being around us. Right. And, you know, I even had one of them. If I chuffed, she'd come into the barn. Right. Um, you know, it wasn't that I trained her. It's just that, you know, she heard that vocal recognition. She knew she had to check it out. Right. And the one thing is, you know, because Angie, she tried to find that. And she yeah, yeah, yeah. So that's what she wanted. She's going to be so excited when she hears <laughs> that. But it's just, you know, in the wild, they don't, they're, they're not vocal, right? You said they, they use well, the sound. Is it they're not like vocal to or? our standards. Yeah. So the, the sounds that they use are actually quite diverse. And um, there was a study done at the Dallas Sioux where they used... Re- um, recording equipment from NASA mm-hmm. and what they did is they came in when the Okapi weren't in the barns and they recorded all the sounds that were going on in the mm-hmm. barn mm-hmm. and then they kept the recorders on when the Okapi were there and the reason why they did that is so they could cancel out all those other noises that were going on right, right. and they were able to pick up this amazing range of sounds that would happen uh, when you work with a mother and a calf Okapi uh, you have to separate them the entire day mm-hmm. uh, in terms of what their behavior is is that uh, mother when she has a calf and it's it's a bit healthy, she'll cache this animal somewhere, or, the, or this calf will go make a nest, mm-hmm. and she'll go away and she'll eat all day. She's got to eat, um, you know, a good sixty-seven percent of her day mm-hmm. in order to maintain uh, her her uh, girlish figure, right, you might yeah, say. Body yeah, and so this calf will only nurse two or three times a day. Right. And but if there's any danger. This calf will make the sound that we can't hear, but it's quite audible to mom. Mm. And mom will come back as quick as she can to figure out what's going on. And there are many times when I work with these animals, I would do something the calf didn't like. Yeah. All of a sudden, I saw its ears do 
you know, just move straight forward. Right. And then, you know, I'd hear a bunch of movement and I'd realize mom's just outside the barn. Mom's coming, yeah. yeah. She's, she's not happy. <laughs> and so I'd have to leave the situation. Yeah. I'd have to open the door, put mom and calf together to reassure them. That and then mom fine. would go back and eat. Right. Yeah. Right. So, yeah, I mean, I, I did read a book about elephants. You know, mm-hmm. I read a, you know, listen to the podcast. That's my... My babies about how they use infrasound and oh, yeah, and yeah. just low vibration. So I wonder, is it is it? I, I don't know if you know because I'm really interested in this now, and I know Angie would be too. You know, is it uh, you know is it really low frequency? Is it a higher frequency outside our hearing? Yes, it's yeah. very low frequency. Okay, so so it's if, like if you want to, yeah. yeah, yeah. So if you want to think of a high frequency, that's kind of like an ultrasound. Yeah, so yeah. when you go get an ultrasound and the doctor see inside your body, that's a higher frequency. Infrasound is very low frequency, which means it can move. Uh, in, through the forest, right. it can move through through objects, right. and the sound will dissipate as it moves through objects. But the fact is that it can still move, whereas right. that high pitch sound, it's once it hits an object, it, it just bounces, bounces back, back. That's and true. it doesn't okay. travel. I think about that. Yeah, yeah. yeah, I just think that I know that's the one thing with elephants is that they can use that to, to communicate over long oh, distances. Oh yeah, yeah, several kilometers. Yeah, and yeah. working with you know horses and stuff that mm-hmm. I've used, that, you know, we always say they they can hear through their legs. Yep. They can hear those or feel those vibrations mm-hmm. or pick up those vibrations. So. You know, copy, and they have those huge ears you oh, know, yeah, to pick yeah. up any minute sound. You yeah. know, for some, yeah, it's crazy. Oh, yeah, that's awesome. Yeah, <laughs> and the chuff is the chuff is the best. Uh, <laughs> yeah, that's awesome. So, what about the negative of working with copy? Anything that you ever happen? You're like, ah. Yes, um, probably my least favorite thing is that. At this conservation center, we had 27 acres dedicated to the okapi. We generally had about between 12 and 15 okapi mm-hmm. uh, dispersed amongst, I believe it was 15 different enclosures, and it was in the swamp. Right. It was right next to a river. Most of Florida is a swamp anywhere near yeah, a river. Yeah. And come uh, June, it was yellow fly season. Oh. And it was the worst part of the job yeah. for about four to six weeks. As soon as the magnolia started blooming, these uh, large yellow biting flies oh, came out. And because we worked in a swampy forest, that is where these flies loved. Yeah. Um, the okapi hated it too. I, like I wasn't the only one that didn't like it. And these flies are attracted to very dark bodied animals. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we had denim jeans and dark blue t shirts, mm-hmm. so they came to that. And the okapi are quite dark animals. Yeah. And so the okapi basically became, uh, we called them barn potatoes yeah. for a few months because if they could get outside of the forest and inside the barn, they would get some relief from that. Right. And with that, because they're in the barn so much, they made a bigger mess. Yeah. So I would have to spend more time cleaning up after the okapi rather than doing all the other things I could be doing right. um, just because of these flies. Right. I actually got to the point I was taking holidays yeah. during yellow fly season because <laughs> it was, I mean, it was four to six weeks, you know, yeah. and as, as soon as the loblolly started blooming, you know, oh, it's, it's going to end soon. Yeah. These flies are going to die off. They've done their breeding and then, you know, we can just go back to our regular terrible mosquitoes. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah, yeah. That was one of the terrible things. The other terrible part is that as a zookeeper, you become attached to these animals. Right. The, this conservation center, it's located near Jacksonville. My closest family was in Miami, about five hours away. And when it came down to it, the closest thing I had to family, apart from my human friends, were these animals. Mm-hmm. Because I spent the majority of my time with these animals. There was only myself and another keeper, my lead keeper. And when she had her days off, I was out there by myself. Mm-hmm. And so I, I, I 
I labeled it okapi fever. Yeah. When I would spend so much time with okapi and not so much time with humans, yeah. uh, that I started to uh, almost seem like the okapi were starting to talk to me, and I was understanding the infrasound. <laughs> that was kind of the negative part, that isolation. And right. it, it really wasn't about the okapi, but it was about the location we were in. Right. Uh, I did mention there were some okapi that didn't like me, okay. uh, one in particular. Uh, she had been hand-raised by my lead keeper, my okay. boss. Yeah. And so she was absolutely in love right. with her. She was quite special because she was the only female from this wild-caught female we had at the conservation center. Wild-caught female, Okapi, had seven calves, and all of them were boys except for the last one. And funny enough, we actually um, shipped out most of her sons to other zoos Mm -hmm. to to breed and and, and help improve the captive population. And her sixth uh, calf, her, her last son... We shipped out thinking, oh, her next one will be a son. Mm-hmm. And out came Elfie. Yeah. And she was actually named Elfie Alpha, uh, after uh, Elphaba, the, uh, the witch character right. in, in, right. um, in uh, Wizard of Oz. Yeah. And, uh, and yeah, she, she kept to that persona. <laughs> uh, she, she was just like her mama. Her mama was a very, very angry animal. And, you know, she was only relaxed when she was around a male that she liked. Mm-hmm. Other than that, you know, you had to earn her respect. Right, right. And with Elfie, she didn't really want to earn any, uh, she didn't want anybody's respect to be earned, just except my lead keeper. So I learned very quickly how an Okapi kicks right, yeah. <laughs> and how to avoid that and yeah. that taught me a lot about animal behavior right? because just the very minute change in how an animal distributes its weight mm-hmm. you know what their next move is mm-hmm. going to be mm-hmm. and you always want to make you know a couple be a couple moves ahead of those animals right. and so I eventually created a relationship with this animal uh, in which you know I brought food I was able to rub her down every day make sure she was alright and then I'd leave her alone mm-hmm. and as long as I did that and I'd bother the rest of the day she was quite fine but apart from that they're amazing animals to work with. Yeah, they, and I absolutely miss I them. I mean, I just, you know, the, the, yeah, we yeah. always talk about the best things about most of these animals. And, yeah. and there are some things that, that people, you know, go realize they are, uh, anim- yeah, wild, wild animals. Wild animals. Very dangerous. They're not, they're not yeah, tame. Yeah. They're not yeah. domesticated. Yep. And it's interesting, you know, sitting here thinking, listening to you talk about the personalities again, and it mm-hmm. just, it amazes me animals and people, I, you know, I, I know we're definitely, as a society as a whole, you know, across the, the planet, mm-hmm. people realize these animals are a lot smarter than we give them credit for. So when you talk about different personalities, that shows intelligence. Oh, completely. You know, yeah, they're just yeah. not eating machines yeah. and they don't have, you know, they just turn off and on. It's, yeah. you know, they, they do have different personalities yep, yep. and they do have different needs and, mm-hmm. and things they like and don't like. And, and that shows a level of intelligence that, of course, that we yeah, need yeah. to recognize. Yep. You know, I actually hate most of the dialogue about animal intelligence because right. people tend to focus on what they consider the most intelligent animals. So like, oh, yeah. dolphins are intelligent and uh, apes are intelligent. Right. And you're like, well, what about the pigs? Yeah. They're actually just as intelligent mm-hmm. in the dogs as dolphins. Yeah. You know, what elevates these animals uh, above the rest of them is because we know a lot. We've mm-hmm. studied them. Mm-hmm. But we haven't given credit all the other animals in the world, oh, yeah. crows, corvids, oh, yeah. um, they're, they're, mo- they're probably more intelligent than parrots, but we haven't studied that enough, mm-hmm. so we don't know. Yeah, I mean, across mammals, you know, they're, they're brilliant. Exactly. You know, they yeah, all yeah, have a level yeah. of intelligence. And then, yep. you know, you even think, you know, talking to keepers and, and yep. people in yep. the animal industry, yep. certain amphibians have personalities. Exactly. You know, yep. Snakes have some certain snakes yep. Yep. have personalities. Yep. And you're like, a snake, you know, you would think... This, this lizard brain that we talk about, you know, oh, yeah, science yeah, yeah. and psychology and stuff, that, you know, we, I think we need to give these animals a lot more credit. Oh, exactly. You know, yep, and, yep. and things. And so Except giraffe. 
Except, Except draft. Draft are totally different. They're, it's like clean slate every single day. Um, you know, totally. It, a good. copy are giraffe. Right. You know, people look at them and say, oh, are they type of Z? But yeah, there are no, giraffe. giraffes. Yeah. Um, and then you have giraffe giraffe. Yeah. And they have that herd mentality. Yeah. And so I've always seen those giraffes as being quite stupid because I work with Okapi all the time. Right, but right. they still have their own personalities. Right. They still have their intelligence to fit whatever niche they have in the environment. Right, right. Yeah, yeah they're, that's, they're... that's an old joke that I always have. <laughs> <laughs> so you were involved in, in captive breeding, and, and yes. something we haven't, you know, Angie and I have talked off and on, yep. and we talk about the Brzezowski horse, we talk about the black oh, ferret, yep. you know, we talk excellent about these species that, you know, the Amir leopard. Yep. You know, there's more Amir leopards in, in captivity than mm-hmm. there is in the wild, and these emergency populations mm-hmm. for, you know, these animals in, in the wild. So for somebody that's worked... Directly in mm-hmm. conservation, mm-hmm. you know. Um, I know you and I talk about what is conservation. So exactly. what is con- I guess yeah. that's a good question for you. How do you define conservation? Um, excellent question. So I look at it as a way of, of measuring uh, conservation against something else. Mm-hmm. And I think something a lot of people get confused about conservation is the word preservation. Right. Preservation is a part of conservation, but they're actually two different ideas. Preservation, if you think about preserved jams, mm-hmm. it's about taking something and saving it, preserving it in whatever state you want it. Whereas conservation is about use. It's about managed re- uh, use, uh, efficient use. The idea is that we use this resource, we use something, but if we don't manage it well, and we don't look after it, it's going to disappear, it's going to be abused. Right. And so conservation is about using the animals that we have. Humans are the ones that, that make this world go round. We, we run the show in terms of economy and how we develop everything. Granted, there's a bigger scheme in terms of ecology mm-hmm. and how we fit into that. Uh, but we uh, manipulate ecology. So if you think conservation is all about preservation, um, you're actually leaving a lot of people left out there to have a terrible quality of life. Mm-hmm. Uh, to not be able to have enough food and make enough money to take care of their families in conservation, what I like to say is conservation starts with people. Mm-hmm. Uh, because it's how we use the world and how we fit into ecology, we've got to consider what our impact is. And with that, we want to preserve some things. That, that's granted, and we can. But we've got to decide how we can make sure that all of us as, as humanity, as mm-hmm. a big community, can take care of each other mm-hmm. and be able to still use these resources that we have. So in terms of conservation and what zoos do, most of the time zoos say, oh, we spread awareness, we, we educate, and that's another thing that hasn't been studied very much. What's the impact that zoos really have in terms of awareness? Mm-hmm. Uh, at some point, we've got to start asking people, hey, would you take a pledge to do something to make an impact to improve the lives of these animals you just came to see today and you're starting to care about? Um, with the work that I did in conservation, and the place I worked at had a very interesting ideas about conservation, uh, one of them was the concept of um, flagship species. Mm-hmm. So if we l- work to preserve an animal um, that is quite large, uh, we call them charismatic megafauna. So these animals that people really uh, gravitate to and that they'll spend a lot of money on to preserve. If we preserve this one animal and we move its conservation in that direction, we have to conserve its habitat. Mm-hmm. We have to conserve where it lives. And by doing that, we're helping to save the wildlife that it lives with. Mm-hmm. So the okapi, for example, you've got uh, chimpanzees, you've got 
um, dozens of species of different primates. You've got hundreds of species of birds, thousands and thousands of different insect species that have an impact upon this very biodiverse region in the middle of Africa. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, you're right. It's like when you have the flagship species like that part in the Congo right now, mm-hmm, that's, mm-hmm. that's that uh, World Heritage Site. Yes, yeah, Okapi oh, Wildlife Reserve. Yes, yeah, yes. so, you know, that they're pouring all that money in for the Okapi, but mm-hmm. then there's, you know, Angie and I, you know, we talk every, every week, trickle up, trickle down. Yes, So yes. there's more Okapi, that benefits leopards. It does, know? yeah, yeah. Uh, but with more Okapi, you know, you benefit, what, what, how many amphibian species do we, that exist in that area that we don't even know about right oh, now? Oh, heaps. Yeah, you know, yeah, or lizards, or, you know, snakes, yep. or... Some other species. So, yeah, that, that's a great point. It's a great point about conservation. Yep. Now, you know, as far as zoos, and I think people's opinions on zoos are, are, are varied. I saw a thing uh, just like just this past week talking about, like, the under 40 crowd. Yes. Their opinions of zoos aren't the greatest, you know, and yep. trying to, you know, change minds mm-hmm. as far as the importance mm-hmm. of captive breeding. That's kind of what Angie and I talk a lot yes, about. Yes. So how did you see the Okapi the, at the conservation center you're working at, mm-hmm. your efforts, you know, how does that translate into to helping sustain that species, I guess? Oh, another excellent question. So one of the things I learned about, I learned from Okapi is about vision and foresight. Um, if you're working with captive breeding Okapi, you have to have a lot of patience mm-hmm. because uh, in order to make an okapi, a uh, gestation period is 14 months long. Yeah. So if we make a decision today that we want to breed these two okapi, it's going to take about three months just to get the female pregnant. And then we have to wait another 14 months before that calf arrives. Mm-hmm. And then from there, we have to think about another year in terms of the management that we have to do to ensure the calf's survival at a very vulnerable age when it's first born. Uh, and then what are we going to do with this animal once it, it's it's now an adult? So that's a lot of planning for like a three-year period. And when it comes down to it, Okapi habitat is disappearing rapidly. Okapi come from a very small corner of Africa. Uh, They live in a very core, specific habitat. They're not generalists. You're not going to find them in in different types of habitats. It's just going to be the strict rainforest. Mm -hmm. And really, captive breeding of zoos in Okapi is not going to do anything for Okapi right now. Mm -hmm. It's just not. And we have to have that foresight to say, hey, this is what's going on where they live. Um, we shouldn't be going to Africa and being the heroes there. Right. Um, we should be enabling the people that live there uh, to do what they need to do to conserve their own ecology. But at the same time, let's take this animal aside uh, with on our own um, countries and breed them and create an insurance policy in case something goes wrong. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Democratic Republic of Congo, or the DRC, uh, they've gone through two civil wars in the 90s. Uh, they've had a huge mining boom in which the countries surrounding them are actually extracting the minerals, taking it to their countries, mm-hmm. and then making money off of it. And now the the president of the Congo, of the DRC, has been in power much longer than he should be, yeah. uh, based on what he said he has, has wanted to do. And now there's all these independent militias trying to earn money from all these different um, mining operations. And, yeah, there's, it's just chaos out there for yeah. wildlife. Yeah. Um, even the work that zoos are doing to assist the communities in uh, the DRC, it's actually working against us right now. Yeah. We decided to set up this conservation um, area, this wildlife reserve, that's around this community called Apulu. 
And it used to be just a little tourist town. There was no copy station there for decades. Mm -hmm. And because we started sending money there and giving people jobs, in that part of Africa, if you get a job, suddenly you're the richest person in your family. Mm -hmm. And then your parents move in, your in-laws move in, your uncles, your aunts, your cousins, they all move in because you can support them Mm -hmm. on that basic salary. And then suddenly the little village of Apulu blossomed tenfold. Mm -hmm. And that's what's it's in the National Reserve, and it's pushing these okapi outside of right, a place that's right, supposed to protect right. them. Um, so it's really hard to say, hey, we want to do these things to improve the lifestyle of the people, to give them the ability to conserve their own resources. And here we are allowing them to actually develop to the point where we're actually harming the animals in the right, process. Right, right. So all we can do is try to work with the economy that's happening there to try to find that balance, because that's what conservation is about. It's that balance, it's that sustainable use. And all we can do is just sit and wait with our insurance policy, our captive population, which is almost 200 now. Uh, they've been working at that for many, many right, years to get right. it to that, that, that point. And it'd be great to, to get it up to 300 and 400 but yeah, it's it's a struggle. It's yeah. a struggle because we think we know how it's going to work, and it works out really well, and then suddenly all these different outside effects happen we never anticipated, and now we've got to try and anticipate that as right. well and find out where that balance is. Yeah, and it's, you know, conservation, you know, there should be, you know, coming in from an academic standpoint. Yeah. You know, we talk about, you know, ex situ, in situ. So, mm-hmm. you know, actually in the wild, mm-hmm. you know, uh, we want to protect and preserve the habitat, mm-hmm. but also in situ where, we're, where we hold some of these animals captive. Yes. We want to make sure, and there's a lot that goes into that breeding of those animals. A lot. Oh, yes. It's yeah. a lot of brain power. Given that I was one keeper for 15 old copy, right. that shows the investment that one zoo was willing to make just for one species. Yeah. We really consider them the divas of the conservation center. Right. And it was, you know, and then you talk about, you know, each group and it, we haven't really in the podcast gone into this too much yet mm-hmm. but as far as stud books and all right you yeah, have yeah a specialist group for that species mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and they all come together and you try to decide who's going to be sent to where in the world you know oh, who's yeah, yeah. going to be breeding yeah. to who you got to create a family tree yeah you've got to have that foresight again yeah. a lot of these stud books and, and uh, species management plans they try to look 100 years in the future right to figure out what our demographics are going to look like if we keep breeding at this rate what our genetic diversity is going to look like at this rate, how much founder representation, mm-hmm. um, because we re- really rely on this concept that any animal caught in the wild brought to a zoo is a founder. Mm-hmm. And those animals are unrelated to all the other founders within mm-hmm. the population. We don't know that. That's not necessarily true. Yeah, yeah. yeah. We, we haven't mm-hmm. yet had the money to actually invest to decide mm-hmm. how related these animals are. Mm-hmm. We just make these basic assumptions, and this is what, what guides our science mm-hmm. into deciding who gets to breed with who? Mm-hmm. In reality, with what happens in the wild, the strongest ones, the ones that are best uh, able to adapt, those are the ones that are passing on their genes. Right. And while we're still trying to maintain genetic diversity, you've got some animals that are like, would you make it in the wild? Right. Yeah. Right. You know, right. when you have a female that produces seven calves and maybe only three survive, you know, you're, you're kind of thinking, is that genetic bloodline something we want to pursue and incorporate, or do we want to keep making sure these strong bloodlines, these animals that are actually quite robust. Um, so it's, it's actually quite a dilemma, and it's a discussion that's been going on for at least 20, 30 years now mm-hmm. on how we best do this. And it's, again, a balance between genetic diversity and the robustness of the genes that we right, had. Right. But if we get these populations to inbred, all it takes is one disease to wipe out every, all the work we've ever done. Right, right. Yeah, I mean, it's... 
it just amazes me, you know, the all the stuff that goes on mm-hmm. around the world. And then, you know, I also know what's going on behind the scenes at zoos and conservation centers and stuff. And, you know, the, the more I've been doing this, you know, since last year, the more I realize how many people around the planet are fighting for these these animals. Oh, yeah. You know, yeah. There, there's a specialist for... I mean, I know we, t- we talked about poison dart frogs, you know, eons ago. But, you know, there's a group in Colombia that mm-hmm. we highlighted that that is all they care about are Colombian poison dart frogs. Mm-hmm. And that's what they focus on, the conservation. You know, there's, you know, Suzanne Smith who's working on, you know, doing the Amazon River Dolphin. You mm-hmm. know, there's mm-hmm. just... It's, it's awesome. It's awesome. It's, it's a great story. So, you know, I'm glad we get to... to to share it with people, which should, I, I guess, you know, we talked a little bit about why, you know, the captive breeding, why conserving a copy is important, mm-hmm, you mm-hmm. know, the, the, the trickle up and down effects, you know, in their habitat, but is there anything the listeners should know about copies that they maybe not know? Oh, oh, I've got heaps of fun facts. <laughs> oh, I could go on for days. Yeah. Uh, some of the things I used to give in my own uh, um, copy talks I'd give to visitors is one, if you look at an copy, everything about this animal is an adaptation to prevent it to be eaten from a uh, leopard. Sorry, leopard, I almost yeah. said jaguar. Yeah. <laughs> um, from from a leopard. Yeah. And if you really look at it, it's it's very thick. Uh, um, if you think about a tiger or a lion, they're going to come at another a prey species from behind, from the side, mm-hmm. but always from below. Mm-hmm. A leopard has a very three dimensional world right. in which it travels on the ground, it travels in the trees. Mm-hmm. This animal can attack the okapi from any single angle. Mm-hmm. And so everything about this animal allows it to be protected. It's got this very huge, thick, muscular neck that if a leopard were to grab onto it, it's going to take a very powerful leopard in order to take it down mm-hmm. and kill the okapi. Very thick skull. This, the okapi can kick out from any uh, leg in any direction. It's not just going to buck and rear, but it's going to what we call cow kick, just mm-hmm. like a cow. It's going to mm-hmm. kick out in any way. These animals move very slowly. If they think there's danger, they absolutely freeze. As as uh, a young adult, I kind of um, thought, oh, it would be great to go research your copy in the wild. And I was told very specifically that if you do that, take a pair of sunglasses with you because you're not going to see anything. <laughs> yeah. um, these animals are really, really right. cryptic, and they right. hide really well. Um, even the population estimates for the Okapi are just that. Right. It, it's, it's some ballpark figure that's been crafted out of what little um, surveys have been done. We really don't know how many we, there are. But we do know their habitat's decreasing. Mm-hmm. So that must mean the population's probably decreasing, decreasing as well. Yeah. The other thing that I've found absolutely fascinating, and I'm sure you might have shared this, is that these calves, uh, when they're first born, they're completely adapted to not be found. Mm-hmm. They mm-hmm. can't thermoregulate when they're born. Mm-hmm. All they do is grow. And in order to facilitate that growth, uh, they don't defecate for nearly two months, mm-hmm. um, and that allows them to kind of stay in their nest without being found by scent right, because right. they don't—they're not making a scent. Right. Um, and because of that infrasound communication, they don't have to get up, they don't have to bleat, they don't mm-hmm. have to cry in order to get mom's attention. Mm-hmm. There, you could walk through the rainforest out there in the DRC, and there could be all copy calves everywhere, and, and you would have no idea they yeah, were there. Yeah, yeah, they're absolutely incredible specialist species. Yeah. Um, that, like I said, I could go on and on about all the different cool little facts. Right, that they have. right. Yeah, we talk yeah. about their tongue. They, yeah, they yeah, can yeah. Their oh, yeah, yeah. They can, <laughs> they can reach nearly every part of their body. <laughs> it's, yeah, it's amazing. They're they're really really neat. Like it's always exciting to see them at, at 
you know, on exhibit. Yeah, this and is special. In those copy pens, I remember going through there too, and it was just like, oh my god, all of those are copied in one area. Like, yeah, to be able yeah. to work there is just uh, amazing. <laughs> to that and the the thirty something cheetahs they had mm-hmm, uh, there mm-hmm. was pretty amazing. So, you know, as we kind of wrap this up a little bit, you know, I, I think we, we I really liked your definition of conservation, so mm-hmm, that, that's mm-hmm. awesome. But you know, one of the things I always like to come at experts in the field and, and people that have been out there fighting the fight is, mm-hmm. you know, why why would you tell people why we should conserve these species? Not just the okapi, I guess. I guess you can say just the okapi, and we talked yeah, a little bit yeah. about their habitat, but why should we care? I mean, if the okapi goes away, we just say bulldoze that whole Congo rainforest, mm-hmm. but, you know, why is that important? You know, some people say, whatever, let nature take its course. Yeah, yeah, no, it's, it's, it's great that you asked that, and it goes back to what I said about conservation, it's about use. It's about how we use things. And when it comes down to it, people value different parts of our ecology in different ways. Whether it's for an aesthetic reason, whether it's for um, entertainment, whether they're using it for food or some other type of resource, everybody has a different way in which they value animals. Mm-hmm. And when it comes to the okapi, uh, the people that live in the DRC are very, very proud of these animals. Um, they've got these animals as symbols uh, for different parts of the government, for different communities. There are children's soccer teams where they use the okapi as their mascot. Mm-hmm. Um, these people are very proud of this. And if we're going to support each other uh, in a global way as, as a humanity, uh, it's important that we support each other in the ways that we value what we have. That's a great um, point, yeah. So with the okapi, you know, maybe to some of us in, in New Zealand, Australia, or, or, or Europe, or in America... Well, copy are just a very interesting animal, mm-hmm. and they're really not going to have an impact on your life. But the thing is, they're having an impact on someone's life. Mm-hmm. And if we're truly humans and we care about each other and we want to grow as, as a species and develop in a way that's sustainable, uh, it's about supporting each other. Mm-hmm. And, you know, some of the best ways, you know, a lot of ways people say, oh, how can I help these animals if I'm really, you know, impact, if I'm really inspired by this? And, you know, the main thing that are being told is, Yep, raise awareness, you know, mm-hmm. tell people what okapi are, yeah. tell people how cool they are, and that's why they're special, that's why we want to keep them around, because they're such amazing species. Yeah. You know, going back to why I really like them, uh, giraffes as we know them today have only been around for a few million years. Mm-hmm. Um, giraffes in the okapi sense have been around for like 15, yeah, 20 million years. Yeah. They're, they're really a relic of, of what used to be here in this world, and that's why I quite enjoyed them um, before I started my zookeeper career. Mm-hmm. The other thing is you can send money. Uh, there's no copy conservation project, and that's what it's called. You can donate m- money to it, and it would help find solutions to make the communities more sustainable out there in the DRC. But those are two easy things that you can do. Mm-hmm. The way you can most impact the, the future for the survival of the Okapi is to consider all the electronic devices you use today. Yeah. There's a tiny little mineral that gets used in every single device called coltan. And the majority of the coltan reserves are mined in the center part of Africa, mm-hmm. and mainly from the DRC. And every time Apple releases a new phone, that's a new heap of coltan that gets used, and that's more wildlife habitat that's disappearing. That's money that's being taken away from the people of the DRC because it's being used by independent militias or neighboring governments. Um, it's what's called a conflict mineral, just like a blood diamond. That's, yeah. what, that's what that is. And... If you want that new phone, that's fine. You know, that's how we, we move along in this world. But remember that old phone that you have. Recycle that. 
Right now, about 70% of coltan that goes in our electronic devices has been newly minted. It's been newly mined. The rest of it is recycled, mm -hmm. and it can be recycled. So if you've got old electronics lying around, don't throw them away. Um, recycle them right. because that resource can be continued to utilize. And the more we recycle these things and realize the impact we can have, I mean, just thinking that me here in New Zealand, my little phone yeah. has an impact on the survival of okapi and gorillas right, and chimpanzees right. and bongo and elephants, and I can go on and on. Just making sure the next cell phone I get, I recycle that old phone so that goes right back into the system. Right. Um, if we really consider all the things that we would like and how we create waste and what we do with that waste, we can really change the world yeah. just from that one solution by how we manage our waste. Right, that's right. Really yeah, cool. I think it's, that's an awesome point. I mean, just today, you know, mm -hmm. in, in the news, you know, and, and this is coming out next week, but, you know, the, the scuba diver off Bali, that, that's, right. she's swimming through garbage. Yeah. Like yeah. literal garbage off this tropical, beautiful island. Yeah. So you think about, you know, cell phones and, you know, people are worried about their information. Just, just reset it. Reset yep. your cell phone, yep. or, or take out your SIM card and throw that yep. away, or yeah, recycle it. I don't know to do that, but you know, find a way to yep. to make an impact because recycling. It's, it's not just your cell phone. It's laptops. Yeah. It's pacemakers. Um, what's really allowed all electronic devices to shrink is because coltan is a very lightweight mineral. Mm. And that's actually been quite important to allow all of our electronics to become miniaturized. Yeah. Um, it's a big component of electric cars now. Uh -huh. um, so you can actually start finding coltan in nearly every single electronic device. Right, right. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, no, it's uh, great insight. As usual, like, this is, again, why I love doing this podcast. Because it's so <laughs> enlightening to talk to people out there in the field, you know, uh, it's just amazing. It's amazing. Uh, thanks for doing this podcast. Uh, ever since I've met you, I've yeah. started listening to it. And you guys, you and Angie, have such a unique way on delivering uh, all this incredible information and the, this, the ways you can inspire people to do conservation action. And, um, yeah, I can see the more you guys do this, the more of an impact you guys can have. Well, thank you. Thank you, Jesse. Yeah, no worries. Anytime. Cheers, yeah, yeah. yeah.